Welcome, listeners, um, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. This podcast, we're going to talk about scrupulosity. I have an author of a book that's been written. He's the author of the book. He has scrupulosity. He's written a book about this. And our joint prayers, this will be helpful for you if you have scrupulosity or if you're a parent, a friend, a local leader that is helping somebody through scrupulosity or to identify that they have it in the first place, that um, this podcast will be helpful for you. Um, The author of the book and the guest on the show is my friend Taylor Kirby. Welcome, Taylor, to the podcast. Thank you, Richard. Um, Taylor is joining us from Arizona via Zoom. I'm in Salt Lake City, and I wish I were in Arizona. I think it's a little warmer there right now that it is in Salt Lake City. Um, Taylor is 30. He's a father of two kids. He served a mission in Washington, D.C. He um, was assigned to speak Chinese, and that kind of got him into one branch for his entire mission, um, the, probably the single Chinese branch in the Washington, D.C. mission. He has a couple master's degrees, and I'll let him perhaps go into a little more detail. And he's a PhD student in psychology. Um, and so this is a guy that um, is a teacher in Arizona. And so this is a wonderful man with a wonderful professional background, academic background, doing good. Gone back to PhD, to get a PhD to do more good in his circle and has also written this book about scrupulosity. Is that okay for an introduction, Taylor? That, I think, was more generous than I deserve, <laughs> Richard. Tell but our listeners you. just your two master's degrees. Sure. So I, I have two master's degrees. One is in religion, and the other is in education. I got those from Claremont Graduate University. Um, I studied under Patrick Mason. Some listeners may be familiar with his work. Um, and that was a really wonderful experience. I. My goal was to use the religion degree to write books that could be helpful for members of our church, um, and uh, which I, which is my goal for this book. Ultimately, that'll be helpful for members of our church. And the second master's degree in education I use to make big, big money in uh, our education system here. Um, in regards to my PhD, I, I feel it's important to make something of a disclaimer. I am not a therapist. Um, I am not a. I am not the person that you would come and talk to who would give you treatment for your scrupulosity. My uh, PhD in psychology is focused on how kids learn. Um, my uh, PhD really looks at how we can increase learning outcomes for students um, and ultimately make classrooms better. Um, which is important work, but is not good if you need to go to therapy, right? Um, so I, I think it's important that listeners understand that this book is not written by a therapist. It's written by someone who was a patient. Um, this is my book telling my story about growing up and ultimately overcoming scrupulosity. In the book, I share uh, a lot of what has worked for me, and I share my story. Um, my book is not a replacement for going to therapy either. Anyone who struggles with scrupulosity ought to make their way to a professional therapist who can help them through. My hope though, is that this book, um, can be helpful to someone who is struggling with it to help them know that they're not alone, 
that there are other people experiencing this disorder who have overcome it. And ultimately, I hope that this book can serve to educate um, our people (laughs) and um, help them understand what scrupulosity is and how we can more effectively minister to people like me who have suffered suffered from this disorder. Tell our listeners, um, and we'll do this at the end of the podcast, where to get your book, the name of the book and where to get it. Sure. Uh, The name of my book is Scrupulous, uh, My Obsessive Compulsion for God. It can be found on Amazon and it was published uh, through By Common Consent Press. Um, Thanks, our friends at By Common Consent, BBC (laughs) Press, for um, their good work and helping you get this book published. And it's at Amazon. I encourage our listeners, we'll put a link in the podcast description to the book on Amazon so you can get it. Um, And listeners, we've done a few podcasts on scrupulosity. If you want to listen after listening to Taylor's podcast and reading his book, if you want to go deeper, you could go to listen learnandlove.org and look for the podcast link. And then there's podcasts categorized by um, sections. And there's a whole section on scrupulosity, including including some therapists. And I love Taylor pointing out the need for therapists. And as I've mentioned, I don't want to make this podcast about our family story, but we do have a son that got in a really dark spot on his mission. And we had no idea what was going on until by a chance encounter with the therapist here in Salt Lake City explaining his symptoms. He typed in scrupulosity to Google and he just let me read the definition of scrupulosity. And I thought, oh my gosh. And we were lucky enough to have a therapist on the area that he served um, that had some expertise in this area. And it was just a real answer to prayer. So this is a real thing um, that I wish I had known about it. You know, at 55, 58, I didn't know anything about this. We'd raised six kids and never heard about it. And I just wish as part of mission prep, as part of parent prep, as part of local leader training, that I had read your book, Taylor. I think I would have known much earlier what was going on with our son. And I get tenderhearted because he got in a really dark spot. And it wasn't um, because of a spiritual weakness in any sense. It was because of scrupulosity. So I, I don't want to make this podcast about our story, listeners. So Taylor, I'll just let you kind of run with it. You could tell your story, whatever you want to go with this. No, Richard, I, I really appreciate you sharing that. I, I think that uh, just anecdotally in my experience talking with people who have struggled with scrupulosity, oftentimes it either developed on their mission or it really came to a head for them when they were on their mission. And that's that's part of my story, too. I experienced scrupulosity for most of my teenage years, but it really became a problem for me on my mission. And um, like your son, I got into a really dark place. There was a time on my mission where I thought about um, um, uh, ending my life almost every day. Wow. And thanks for um, just being honest and sharing that, Taylor. Thank you. I, I realized as I said this, I, I I didn't provide a warning for our listeners. So, but I, um, but that was that was that was a reality of my experience on my mission. There was a, um, I forgive me if this is too graphic. There was a balcony in our apartment, and I remember almost every day walking 
into the apartment and looking at the balcony and thinking maybe that's that I needed to jump off that balcony. Um, so honest. Backing up, backing up a, a little bit to, to how we got to that point. Um, I am, I hope your listeners have listened to your other episodes about scrupulosity. Um, if they haven't, it may be useful to talk a little bit about what scrupulosity is. Good. Um, scrupulosity is a type of obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, now, obsessive compulsive disorder or OCD is a disorder that, in my opinion, is generally not understood very well. Um, um, at least not as well as something like depression or anxiety is understood. Um, obsessive compulsive disorder um, has two components. The first are obsessions and the second are compulsions. Obsessions are beliefs you have that foster anxiety and they build and they build and they build and they create pressure within the individual. A compulsion is an activity or a ritual, some kind of action that the person will perform in order to alleviate that anxiety. Okay. Um, now, scrupulosity is different from other forms of OCD because the obsessions are focused on God or just being very, very good. Um, interestingly, um, they don't always have to do with God. Um, atheists, for instance, for instance, can be diagnosed with scrupulosity. Um, and in their experience, the obsession is going to be wholly on whether or not they're a good person. Were they sufficiently kind to this person at work? Um, you know, whatever. So the, the, the big point here is that there is this consistent obsession running through your mind. Am I a good person? Am I a good person? Um, there's, there's this stereo. I, I use this example in the book. There's this, um, I think very reductive stereotype of someone with scrupu uh, with, uh, with OCD, uh, maybe fidgeting with a picture frame, trying to get it as straight as they possibly can. Um, that's a reductive stereotype, but it, it, it is helpful to understand scrupulosity. Imagine someone fidgeting with that picture frame, trying to get it just as straight as they can, except the picture frame is not a picture frame. It is the question of how good you are. You are obsessing over how good you are with the same amount of fervor as that fictional person is straightening the picture frame. Um, growing up, I was... Um, very, very obsessed with two things. First was how good I am. And second was whether or not I was ultimately going to um, go to heaven, <laughs> whether I was going to go to the celestial kingdom. And I was wholly convinced that if I was not doing enough stuff, if I was not reading my scriptures enough or praying enough or working hard enough, or if I sinned in some sort of way that I was going to be disqualified from returning home to my father in heaven. Um, one of the opening stories I tell in the book, um, and this, this sounds very strange, but that's precisely why I share it. I'm, I'm hoping that 
other people who have experienced this and wonder, you know, gosh, has anyone else ever experienced this? We'll read my book and find a sense of community. Um, one of the first stories I share in the book is uh, something that happened to me very frequently when I was a kid. Um, I was walking around the store um, and all of a sudden I had what you would call in seminary a bad thought um, or maybe an impure thought. And I realized as a kid that I had to pray and ask for forgiveness immediately for having this impure thought. Um, I had learned in seminary that you could control your thoughts, or at least that was that was a message that was conveyed to me that I could control my thoughts. And so I was convinced, and I'm this started happening to me when I was about 14 or 15. I was convinced that if this thought was in my head, um, I had done something wrong. And so uh, being at the store in the public in a public place, I would have to find a place to kneel down. Um, to properly pray and ask for forgiveness for having this bad thought. And so I would either pretend to tie my shoe or look at something on the bottom shelf and ask God for forgiveness properly, kneeling down for having had this impure thought. Um, And so in that experience, we can see both my obsessions and my compulsions, right? The obsession is this continuing thought that um, I had an impure thought, and because I did, I am a sinner. And if I let this uh, sit unrepented in my head, I am going to be disqualified from going back to heaven. And the compulsion, the activity that relieved that anxiety, was finding a place to kneel down and pray. Um. And this sort of activity, when I was younger, especially when I was 15 or 16, this is something I would do, I mean, over and over again throughout my day. Um, In my book, I tell the story of one time when I was at a sleepover and I felt the need to do this compulsion. (laughs) And so I, I had to, you know, either find a place to pray really quick or excuse myself to go to the bathroom. Um. And that sort of thing just continued throughout the time I was in youth programs in in the church and and ultimately on onto my mission. Um, One reason that missions become so hard for people who suffer from scrupulosity is the mission is an environment where you are consistently told that you need to work harder and do more. And I think. Mission presidents uh, very well-meaningly assume when they begin their trainings that their missionaries are not working hard enough um, or that their their missionaries are slacking off or whatever. And it's possible that from the perspective of a mission president, that is easy to believe. Um, I imagine that a mission president deals more with a missionary, with missionaries who, you know, either want to go home or, or don't want to, don't want to go out and do the job. Um, but the problem when you're a person with scrupulosity 
is we, when you're sitting in a in a training, a, a district conference or a, a zone conference, something like that, and you hear this message that we need to work harder, we need to be more obedient. Um, you take that message very seriously. And what I discovered on my mission was that there was simply no way for me to be more obedient. Um, there was simply no way for me to work harder um, in a way that was healthy. And um, it creates a situation where the obsessions grow um, and you ultimately can't relieve all of that anxiety. And it, it, uh, it, it can happen very quickly that that anxiety transitions into a very deep and, and difficult depression. Um, and um, I became convinced very quickly on my mission that um, I was not doing enough, that I was not working hard enough, and that I was simply not good enough to do the work that I was called to do. Um, I've been talking for a while. <laughs> I, can, I can talk more about how I overcame that. Um, but I, I want to, I, I, see, I see you, Richard, writing down some things. It looks like maybe you have some follow-up questions. And so why don't we, why don't we break from my soliloquy here and uh, um, let, let's, let you uh, ask, ask what you're writing down. Well, my first thought is pretty tender heart, Taylor, for what you know now and what you didn't know then. And if you could go back and talk to your younger self as you walk by the balcony, the things you could have said to your missionary self, Elder Kirby, that you know now that you didn't know then that would be so helpful. And that's why your book's so needed. And just what you just shared right now is so honest and so helpful and so insightful. And I I wrote down, you know, when we went from obedience to strict obedience, I'm not sure we increased the obedience level. I think we just created a lot of anxiety and a lot of stress. I and, agree. <laughs> and for maybe some people going from obedience to strict obedience is what they needed to hear. But for a lot, they're doing their very best. And it just created the feelings that you felt. And I'm remembering of past episodes, things I've learned that scrupulosity attacks the things that are the most important. So here you are trying to be clean and trying to bring people unto Christ and, and out here on a mission giving two years of your life and scrupulosity robs you of the ability to feel you're worthy enough to bring people unto Christ or that you're somehow an impure thought or missing a getting up two minutes late now has, has robbed somebody of their eternal salvation because you weren't you weren't perfectly or strictly obedient. And, and as I think we, we both know, and I think how Christ taught, that's not true. We had an earlier guest, Tim Chavez, um, talked about his scrupulosity, ended up being a mentor to our son on his mission. And Tim said something kind of similar. He said, you know, I, I just decided the only way I could survive out here is I was beyond salvation because of my thoughts, but I can stay because maybe I can help somebody else. And God would never want someone to feel that way on their mission, that they're beyond no, salvation. 
It's, and it's, it's a completely false idea. I, um, one, one thing I talk about in my book, Richard is, um, I, I, I tell the story of the Israelites making their golden calf. And, um, I talk a little bit about how in the old Testament, the chief sin, the, the number one sin was idolatry, was turning away from God, worshiping some God that is not God. And one realization that has helped me, one shift in theology that has allowed me, frankly, to stay in the church um, is this. I, um, growing up, I believed that the proper way to be a member of the church was to safeguard myself from all sin at any level to any degree, that God cannot look at sin with the least degree of allowance, <laughs> a scripture that you take seriously when you have scrupulosity. And so the solution was to rid myself of all sin all the time. And I make the case in my book that as I was doing that, I was ultimately creating an idol for myself. Wow. That I was creating a golden calf of my own purity. Which is not to say that the avoidance of sin is not important or necessary, but it is to say that the avoidance of sin is not God. It's something different from God. And one thing that has helped me overcome my anxiety is the conviction that if I become too preoccupied with how good I am or how pure I am or how nice my thoughts are, I am, li I am living the gospel outside of what we are called to do which is worship our Father in heaven. Um, I am creating a God for myself that is not God. Now, um, that is one, one other way that my worship has shifted um, in navigating scrupulosity um, is, is this. I, I, I first know that my own purity is not God. But I also know, as Jesus taught in the New Testament, and as King Benjamin taught in the Book of Mormon, that, that when, I am, when I am in the service of my fellow beings, I am in the service of my God. And when I do something, when I serve the least of these, I am ultimately serving Jesus Christ himself. In other words, what I have found to be a more powerful motivation than my own righteousness is churning outward and serving other people. And um, I don't know if this is a solution for everyone, but one thing that has been the solution for me is recognizing that the gospel calls us to churn outward, that we don't find Jesus Christ 
inside our own righteousness. We find Jesus Christ in serving others. And so if I become preoccupied with how good I am or how sinless I am, um, I, I, would, I, I tell myself, as someone suffering from scrupulosity, that I am worshiping a different God, <laughs> that, I, that I've created a golden idol. And what I, what I have found is the best way to be a member of the church, the best way to live the restored gospel, is to serve other people. Um, one story that I tell in the book is this. I, I, I had a friend who also suffered from scrupulosity, and at one point he confided in me that he just felt he wasn't a good Mormon. And he, um, he sometimes his church attendance was off, um, but when he went to church, he often just felt worse about himself, right? So he was, he was caught in this, t- this tug of war between feeling bad about himself for not going to church and feeling bad about himself when he went to church. Um, he um, felt like he wasn't living the commandments as strictly as he should, um, and, and, and this and that. And um, as he was telling all this to me, he happened to mention an experience that he had at the store where he was a, where he was a manager. Um, he, one day while managing at this grocery store, there was this elderly woman that came up to him and just wanted to talk. And she talked about her, um, you know, her grandkids needing help and, and um, how worried she was about her family. And, and she just kind of unloaded to him, you know, for 45 minutes while he's trying to stock the shelves or whatever. Um, and then he went back to talking about what a bad Mormon he was. And I, I, I stopped him in the conversation and I said, no, you're, you're a fine member of the church. Don't like this woman came to you and you were able to be a comforting, um, kind presence for this woman. And maybe even more than going to church, or living all of the commandments with exactness, that's really what it means to be a servant of Jesus Christ. And for him, it was, it was kind of a light bulb moment, and, I, and that's why I, I share the, the, the story in the book. Um, that I, I personally have found that I am able to manage my scrupulosity better when I recognize first that God isn't actually that interested in how righteous or pure I am. At least that's my conviction. Um, And second, he is very, very interested in the extent to which I can provide a loving, caring presence for his children. Now, is it possible that a person with scrupulosity could then become obsessed with trying to um, do as much as they possibly could for other people 
and you know uh, wonder if they were really as caring as they were for as they could have been for someone else um i suppose that it is um that has not yet been the case for me personally and that's why this book is is just me sharing my story right um not me being a therapist for everyone um, but in my experience in my personal experience as i have shifted the focus from trying to be as good as I possibly can to just trying to care for others and be a comforting, kind presence for others. As I've tried to live the restored gospel that way, I have had to worry less about my scrupulosity. Um, what's important, though, I think, for anyone suffering from scrupulosity is to be able to foster the conviction that God is really less interested in how sinless we can become and much more interested in us being able to be kind to others. Taylor, we've done a lot of podcasts and um, that was one of the very finest segments anybody's ever shared. I loved um, you used the word a shift in theology that sort of allowed me to stay in the church. I like um, people that are able to sort of navigate ways. I, I love stories of people that have been able to stay in the church, but sometimes it takes a shift. Um, mm -hmm. And I love then, you know, a friend of mine, you remind me of a friend of mine that says, culturally, sometimes we have this line that says, We'll go work out our salvation. You work out yours, Taylor. I'll work out mine. It's a very individualistic thing. We kind of get in our individual silos, and this is between me and God and becoming sinless. And um, he challenged that thinking, just like you have learned and shared, is a lot of working out our salvation, quote unquote, is our interaction with other people. And it's mm -hmm. not meant to be an individualistic thing. It's meant to be interdependent. It's meant to be the beauty of that friend taking 45 minutes um, with that woman in the store. That's the beauty. of. I think of Christ's mission. Uh, I had an institute teacher that said, if we lived in Christ's day and we were sort of all sitting around talking about him, we might define his ministry less by doctrine that he's teaching and more by how he's teaching us to treat people. Mm -hmm. um, and a manifestation of our faith wouldn't be a statement of doctrine but it'd be a statement of how we're treating people. Um, no, absolutely. And you've I, just kind I, of shared that with us, and I think that really yeah. resonates with me very much so. No, absolutely. I um, um, one Another point that I make in the book, um, I, I try to make the argument that the restored gospel is really, truly, about bringing people together. And I, I talk at length in one of the last chapters of the book about how in, in Joseph Smith's day, he performed this literally by actually bringing people together. And I, I, I firmly believe that one of the golden truths of the restoration, one thing that we can offer the world is the conviction that part of Christianity is gathering, gathering together. Um, 
in the create and and um, fostering the creation of Zion, a place where we all care for each other. Um, as as you were talking, I was thinking of another point I make in the book that um, as a person going through this journey with scrupulosity, I eventually realized that I could never know with 100% conviction that I was sinless or that I had, meaning that I had repented of all of the sins I had ever uh, committed. I could never, never know if I was sinless. But I could know that I was a good listener for someone else. I could know that I had um, helped a student as much as I could, right? Um, So in some ways, this shift in theology, this churning outward, allowed me to have that intellectual surety that I needed to have as a scrupulous person, but could not have when the focus of my theology was um, the question of my sinfulness. And so, um, and, and I, I want to say one more time that this outward thinking in my theology was, was not the one thing that saved me. I also went to a lot of therapy, (laughs) (laughs) a lot of, you know, um, therapy is the solution also, right? Um, if, if, if someone is struggling with scrupulosity, they need to get into a counselor, um, particularly a counselor who specializes in obsessive compulsive disorders or anxiety disorders, right? Um, but also I found as a person with scrupulosity that I was not going to find peace until I could change my false image of what my heavenly, of what I believe my heavenly father expected of me so long as it was my conviction that heavenly father expected me to be perfect and so long as i defined perfection as complete freedom from sin i was never going to be free from scrupulosity so in other words it took both lots and lots of therapy and a shift in theology. And one case that I really try to make in the book is that the restored gospel, as I understand it, and, you know, listen, I, I, I've spent a lot of time <laughs> trying to think about our history um, and our theology, right? Um, I am convinced that a preoccupation with our sinfulness is not what the restored gospel is about. Wow. Um, I am convinced that the purpose of the restored gospel is to bring people together and create Zion. I am of the, I am convinced that our commission as Latter-day Saints is to foster Zion in whatever sphere of influence we have. That is our calling as covenant-holding members of the restored gospel. 
our commission is not to be sinless. It is to foster Zion. Um, in fact, we know as members of the restored gospel that Eve and Adam fell from grace as a way to serve humanity. This is one of the big shining truths of the restoration. In the book, I talk a lot about my grievances with a man named St. Augustine, who, um, if you're not a religious studies scholar, you've never heard of. Um, but um, for me, he is, he, is the, uh, he is the one historical figure that if I could go back and, uh, you know, just give a good punch to the chest, I, I, I would do it. Um, he is the man credited with, um, with um, coming up with the theology of um, original sin. He is the man that came up with the idea that um, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they um, first they discovered their nakedness, which he interpreted to mean they discovered their sexuality and that their sexuality made them sinful and that they passed on sinfulness through sexuality um, to all people of the earth. And as a result of their sin, all of us are born sinful. When we study the restoration and when we study Joseph Smith, I believe we study a man who was trying very hard to push back against that idea. Um, it is my conviction that Joseph Smith was trying to teach us that um, we are not born sinners. And in fact, that human beings are actually rather good. And that it is a good thing that we live in a world where we can sin. That sins or mistakes ultimately create experience by which we learn things and ultimately are able to return to our Heavenly Father better off. Um, one thing that um, um, when, when St. Augustine began to populate this idea of the fall of man, what he did was create distance between us and God. Um, he suggested that God is up here. He is made of different stuff than us. He is of a different um, quality than human beings. And we human beings are down here. We are sinful and we are bad. And our mission in life is to get rid of our sin and come back to, come back to God. Joseph Smith, pushes back on that theology by saying, no, first, actually, we're all made of the same stuff. We're all, there's, there, there is not a binary um, of matter and non-matter. There's just stuff. Um, you're made of God's stuff and I'm made of God's stuff. And that we are literally children of God. That there is no um, pre-existing distance between us and our Father in heaven. And that this world of sin and difficulty 
is actually being used by God to teach us things and and make us into something more than we were before. Um, It is not a fallen, sinful wasteland. It is a place full of experiences that you need to experience that will teach you things and bring you back to God. In other words, as I understand him, it is my conviction that the God of Joseph Smith does not want us to live lives that are completely devoid of sin. He wants us to experience the world and make mistakes, and he provided a savior to make up the difference so that ultimately we can make mistakes and and do wrong things and learn from them and come back to he- come back to live with them in other words it it's it, it's my conviction that the restored gospel teaches us that ultimately sin is something that heavenly father is strong enough and the atonement is strong enough um that they are able to use as learning devices for us. Sin is not something that um, God is um, trying to use as some disqualifying agent whereby he can keep his kids out of heaven. Sin is something that God, through the atonement, has repurposed as a learning opportunity for each and every one of us. Um, so we can come down here, have experiences and come back to him. A more experienced, rounded, tested person. Um, and that shift in understanding has been helpful for me as one with scrupulosity. Um, as I have held on to this conviction that God is using sin to teach me or that, or rather that through the atonement, sin, sin can be shaped into something that teaches me rather than some, you know, mud that God will look at and see me as being unclean. As I have embraced this shift in theology, I have been able to disregard a lot of the obsessions that um, ultimately weighed me down as a person with scrupulosity. Um, you're, you're really unique in your story of scrupulosity because you have this context through your master's degree and your life experience as a member of the church to bring context to the uniqueness of a restored gospel, the history of Christianity, the difference that Joseph Smith brought. And that's wonderful context for your for the story that helps. And just your theology as you really perhaps owned our theology and understood it in its full intent and full ability. Your you had a shift there that was helpful for you. Talk you're a parent, I'm a parent. Um, um I know you wouldn't be saying this, but why if someone's listening and say, well, I should just sin then. There should be no boundaries to sin. Is Taylor inviting me to just go without bound and open the door to just all these experiences because it's part of mortality? I know you're not saying that, but it might be good to 
just um, talk about why there are boundaries and why it's good to keep commandments. Yeah. Um, well, first, that's exactly what I'm saying. Go and sin, people. Uh, <laughs> there so you I, go. I, yeah, it's, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> you have my permission. Um, no, ob- obviously, that's that's not what I'm saying. Um, but I one thing that I one thing that I think is important to note is that as I'm talking, I I am talking as a person who struggles with scrupulosity, right? And so. Um, in the back of my head at all times is the intention to do good things. Right. Um, right. And I, I actually believe, and I, I could be wrong about this, but I, I think it's the case that to one degree or another, every Latter-day Saints actually has that intention too. I really truly don't believe that there are Latter-day Saints out there looking to figure out how to sin as much as possible. And I, I think sometimes we falsely make that assumption before we give lessons in the church. I, I think especially in youth programs, we often start our lessons with the assumption that our audience is looking to do all of the wrong that they can possibly do. And that it's our job to kind of shore them up as much as we can. Um, in my book, I talk about the interesting contradiction as a youth um, between being told on the one hand that we are the chosen generation and being told on the other hand, um, or, or, or being spoken to on the other hand, like we are just, waiting to get out there and do all the sin we can do. Um, so that, that's, that's, that's my first thing is I, it's good. I think think as Latter-day Saints, we need to shift our assumption about our audience. I don't think our audience is looking to sin. I think our audience is looking to be good Latter-day Saints. And I think, you know, I, I don't think the majority of our audience, uh, the, the, I, I don't believe the majority of Latter-day Saints are struggling with scrupulosity, but I do believe that the majority of Latter-day Saints are trying to do their best and probably, more than sinning, sit at home at night wondering if they're doing enough. I think that's probably more common than the desire to go out and sin. Um, I think Latter-day Saints more than anything else um, um, need need to hear that if they are well-intended, if they are doing the best they can, that their Heavenly Father respects their efforts. Um, I love that. I I didn't Sorry. Go ahead. Just real quickly. I, I really like that. And I know in my YSA assignment, just to my experience is what you're sharing is most of those repentance interviews were not people that said, okay, it's, this is the way I can turn my back on God. This is the way I can disappoint God. This is the way I can turn my back on the church. 
there's usually regret and sorrow and not a lot of premeditation. This is what I'm going to do to turn my back on God. And um, perhaps there was some acceptance to that. And often I learned that even the sin itself was often, you know, I call it the bottom of the iceberg. There was certainly sin on the top of the iceberg, but sometimes it would kind of get to the bottom of the iceberg and understand what, what, what was really going on there. There wasn't a lot of sin in, even in the sin. It was a coping mechanism, an escape, or a way to deal with the complexities of life that wasn't sort of. So my experience in my YSA assignment is very similar to what you're sharing, Taylor. And I think grace is the one of the words you're giving to people is just the grace that I think our heavenly parents would give. Is I felt more of impression to sit back with the YS and say, "It's what, what did you learn? Um, what what can you do now to improve?" and with this, and almost always, it was a feeling that they did want to improve, that they wanted to figure out a way to put this behind them and not make it repetitive. And I think heavenly, I think heavenly parents in Christ are more interested not if we sin or not in the first place, but what we do with that. I think mm-hmm. that's where the real rubber meets the road, so to speak. And and can we learn from this? And and there's spiritual gifts that come through the process of working through sin. You, I think you develop more empathy, more compassion. And some of the words that you cr- used, creating Zion, creating a feeling of belonging for others, because you just recognize and sometimes your heart grows in a way that I don't invite people to sin to have their heart grow, but it's just part of mortality, Taylor, to walk right. these roads. Well, and I, and I think you're you're absolutely right it's part of mortality to walk these roads and i um this sounds maybe counterintuitive but one thing that has helped my scrupulosity is the conviction that sin is unavoidable um it's a great line we, it's really a great we, line taylor thank you i i mean i i i think that often in the church, we wrongfully paint sin as something that is um, always deliberately chosen. And it's true that we have agency and, 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 and we make choices, but it's also true that as a mortal person living a mortal life in a mortal world, we cannot fully avoid the experience of sin. And as I shared earlier, it's become my conviction that God doesn't want us to, right? God, our Heavenly Father, loves us too much to send us to an environment where um, we cannot avoid sin and then turn around and get mad at us for not avoiding sin, right? That's why he sent us a savior to clean us up. And um, anyway, I I digress a little bit, but. You know, I think of, I'm a marketing researcher by profession. So the marketing researcher of mind of mine wants to do an AB group and have the same number of teenagers, LDS teenagers in each group. And talk about sin in two different ways to each group. Um, group B, sort of the the way you're talking to them and the way I'm talking to them, and neither group is getting a message, it's okay to sin. 
you're just getting context for and I've, sort of the positive nature of, of sin, the reality of mortality, some of the things you've said. And I've wondered at the end of the day, if group B, you can't really do this, would actually sin less because of the way, because of the way it's being framed up to them in a more healthier and their relationship and worth to God, which I think worth is set um, regardless yeah. of sin. And I think their degree of connection with their heavenly parents and the Savior might be stronger because they just feel they're worthy and good enough to have that connection. So um, I really like no, what I, you're sharing. I, I absolutely think, no, thank you. I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off. I, I absolutely think that would probably be the case. Um, and you know, again, like I, 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 I want to be clear. I, I don't, um, I, I truly don't think people should go out in sin. Um, I, I also just think that we can't avoid the fact that sin exists. And, um, I think too often in our lessons, especially to youth, we suggest that sin can be 100% avoided. And we know that there was one man who avoided all sin and he was, he was the son of God. Um, for the rest of us, it's an impossibility. The other thing I would say, Richard, is I, I think that um, when we give lessons uh, that emphasize the guilt that comes from sin, or when we, when we try to um, impress to people, especially young people, um, young single adults or youths, when we try to impress to them the importance of of remaining holy, spotless, and pure from sin. More often than not, I would argue that those lessons are coming from a place of fear. Yeah, they are coming from this wrongfully placed conviction that we are going to lose these kids, and the only way to keep them here, yeah, is to keep them out of sin. And I think. The, the irony here, Richard, is that when we continually um, reinforce beliefs that foster guilt and shame, we are actually paving the road um, of departure for a lot of these kids. Um, in my when I was at Claremont. Um, I had we we once had a conference um, that was uh, the the um, the final speaker of the conference was a man named Bill Zuckerman, who was also one of the um, readers of my thesis. And um, he is he is a wonderful man um, who is uh, a sociologist by profession and an atheist himself. And um, he is he is the sort of man that if if. If you were having lunch alone with him, he would confess to you that he believes religion is probably more bad than good. And, uh, you know, the world would probably be better if we didn't have religion. Um, by the way, it was really fun having him and Patrick Mason as my two that's, thesis readers. You, you could not have two <laughs> more that, different people that's awesome. as my academic advisors. Um, but anyway. I, I will never forget at this conference, we're sitting around and 
we're, we're having dinner with, with, with Bill. And um, he was talking about ways that non-religious people live um, and ways that sp specifically he was discussing as a sociologist, the ways in which non-religious people or people who have left religion um, find ways to fill in the gaps that religion once filled in their life. And he said something that I, that I think about all the time. He said that the, someone who has left religion can replace almost everything. They can find a new set of rules to live by. They can find a new way of um, finding awe in the world and in the universe. But the one thing that secular life has yet to really replace is a religious community. And right now, in the church, there is all sorts of conversation about how we keep people active, especially young people. And one point, this is not the central point of my book, but it is a point of my book, and it's a point that I hope people write down <laughs> somewhere, that as Latter-day Saints, our biggest, forgive me as I use this, this term, our, our biggest market advantage is community. Our biggest market advantage is community. We will never, ever scare someone into staying a member of the church. We cannot get someone to avoid sin enough that they will always stay a member of the church. What we can do is create home in the church. We can create a place that they know they are always at home. And that is what will keep people in the church. In fact, Bill Zuckerman, he wrote a book also called Faith No More. I'm plugging his book now, I guess. Um, but in it, he has a chapter about former Mormons, people who leave the church. And what Phil Zuckerman found was that the dominant reason people leave the church was not actually because of disbelief. Most of the time, they were very new. The people he interviewed were, you know, neutral towards ideas about golden plates or whatever. Um, the reason more than anything else that they left the church is because it, as it existed in their community, was not working for them. They felt unloved or unwelcome. And that is what motivated them to stop attending. And so I, I guess going back to the question of um, encouraging people to sin more, <laughs> which is what I'm not trying to do. Um, what I am trying to do at the end of the day is do my part to help this church become a little bit more like Zion, a place where we are of one heart and one mind and there's no poor among us. And at least in my vision of what Zion is, 
we are at home. No matter how much sin we've committed. If we want to keep this church going in the 21st century, it's <laughs> God will take care of the sin. We had a meeting in the pre-earth life to figure out what we were going to do with sin. And Jesus volunteered to be our savior. And as far as I'm concerned, we've got it taken care of. I'm not going to try to do the job of the son of God. Wow. What I will do is create a place where people can come and feel like they're loved and wanted and taken care of. That's our job. The Holy Ghost will let people know when they're sinning and the son of God will cleanse them from their sin. That's their job. Our job is to be the hands of Jesus Christ in building Zion in our buildings of church and in our everyday life. And as we create a community where people feel that they are wanted and needed and loved, they will stay with us. <laughs> the reason we lose people and Mike, I could be wrong about this, but I think, I truly believe the reason we lose people is because we have prioritized this false God of purity over the God who paid for our sins. We have, I think, too often created a, ch a church situation in which we have come to falsely believe that we need to be perfect or spotless or sinless in order to be a part of the community. Um, I was, um, I, I try to make this point in the book. I, I think I made it better on Twitter the other day when I said that um, I have a, a lot of what we could call holy envy for friends of mine that are Catholic. Um, because Catholics, as, as I have seen, have probably just as many rules as we have as Latter-day Saints. But one difference between us and Catholics is the idea that um, when you break a rule, that doesn't disqualify you from being a member of the community. Um, if a Catholic goes and sins, there is never a question about whether or not they are still Catholic. Unfortunately, when Latter-day Saints sin, especially when we, not that there are actually big sins and small sins, but when we commit a sin that we imagine as being bigger, it's conceivable that um, another Latter-day Saint might look at, at this sinner and wonder if they are still, quote-unquote, in the church. If they're still a, a member of, of our body of Christ. Um, and I, one thing I, I shared on Twitter recently is that even, even the more compassionate lessons and talks um, that are meant to address this sinning population, <laughs> um, most of those talks come from a place of, 
hey, you can come back and be a member and be part of our community again. Um, seldom do these talks say things like, we're just so glad you're here. Um, so that, I mean, that was, that was a long soliloquy that may have deviated from the point, but, um, all of this is to say, I think that our job, our commission as members of the church is to create a community where we recognize that we are all sinners and we also recognize that the vast majority of us, um, 99.99% of us, maybe even all of us, are just doing the best we can. And we also need to recognize that when we give talks and lessons that are hyper-focused on the avoidance of sin, number one, that's doing great damage to people who suffer from scrupulosity because they're actually taking your lesson seriously. And it's all this, and this is not my story to tell, so I'll, I'll, I'll just, you know, say this. It's also probably doing great damage to our LGBT population. Um, but more, but, uh, and it is probably coming from a place of fear rather than faith. Um, fear. And, and I think I could be wrong about this, but I think that fear is primarily focused on the conviction that if we do not get people to avoid sin, they will leave our community. And I think we need to recognize that sin is not actually the thing that is getting people to leave our community. Sin is not actually the motivating factor to leave the restored gospel. More often than not, people leave the restored gospel, or rather they leave our church community because they don't feel like they have a home there. So if we are interested in retaining the people we have and fostering our Zion, it is my conviction that we have to start from a place of community building within our wards, within our stakes. And I am just not sure that that can be properly done so long as this idol God of personal purity remains at the forefront of our theology and our talks and lessons. It's a great podcast, Taylor. Um, listeners, I don't know much about my guests before they come on, and I've known Taylor through Twitter in particular, but I've, Twitter doesn't give you the chance to have this kind of discussion and realize um, this good man's insights into the restored gospel or scrupulosity. Here's some notes I wrote down, and I'd love Taylor to take the final, make a final comment and make sure to tell people where to find his book. Um, Taylor used some words. This is what I wrote down. I wrote down the word home. Use that words multiple times to describe how our congregation should feel. 
Um, you use the word Zion quite a bit. Um, I think um, I wrote down Jesus has always paid the price. When I was a teenager, I always thought my sin was adding another burden to Christ's arms or cross. And I recognize that's flawed theology, that he's already paid the price. Um, in fact, he actually rejoices when we take advantage of the gift he's already given to us. So it's a completely paradigm shift, um, but it's consistent with what Taylor's teaching. You said a really powerful line that I first heard from Cal Burke on Twitter. Maybe he got it from you. Maybe it's just a line that's been out there. We're called to be gatherers, not sifters. That is a powerful, powerful statement. And it's so consistent with what we're trying to accomplish in the church. I'm thinking of a young man in our area who left the church. And he just told me one day, I said, he said, I'm not Mormon enough. Mm. And that is so, con- I thought of him multiple times as you were describing people that left the church. He just felt like he couldn't measure up, that he just could never be Mormon enough. And I believe that at our, the temple has a narrowing of the gate, listeners. There is a belief in behavior hurdle to go in the temple, but let's don't so- sort of bring that culture, that expectation into our congregations and create a belief or behavior hurdle that somehow to be welcome or feel home or a feeling of belonging or create Zion that we've got to have a temple recommend. Or that can, I, that's, can I comment on that really quick? And, and yes, then I'll, please I'll, do. I'll, let me just insert something. Um, one thing that has brought me great comfort as a person with scrupulosity who is a Latter-day Saint um, is, is this, an, uh, uh, this, I, I, I want to make this as, as concise as possible. Um, in, in Joseph Smith's day, there was uh, the, the, the dominant idea um, surrounding heaven and salvation um, was this Calvinistic idea uh, called predestination that God had already chosen specific people that were going to go to heaven and that it was our whole job was to look inside ourselves and just and figure out if we were saved or not and then um accept and and um and w- by a true reading of John Calvin we 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 don't even have the agency to decide the holy spirit will pull us up to heaven um and um and many of us will not make it and we will go to hell <laughs> and as i read joseph smith I see a person who is really trying to push back on that idea. Um, that I think is is where um, his his thinking and his pondering led him to baptisms for the dead and three degrees of glory. I I see someone cool. in Joseph Smith who is trying to bring in who, who um is, is is trying to teach that God wants to save as many people as possible. Um, to the point of the temple, um, it's true that there is a behavior standard to enter the temple. Um, but the other thing about the temple is that we also do a lot of work for the dead. And as far as we know, the dead do not need a temple recommend. And so, all of this is to say that whether we can get our endowments now or we can get our endowments later, as I read 
the restored gospel, it doesn't seem to make a big difference to God. And so this behavior standard seems to me um, to be a condition of mortality. Interesting. Fascinating. You know, and again, I, I don't know how things work on the other side. Um, I've never been there. Um, I'll let you know <laughs> when I'm there. But as my, in my experience at the temple, there has never been a worthiness interview for someone who has passed. That is. And this is, um, this, this is now, you know, I, I, I have a lot of conviction in, in things I've shared. I, I will, um, I, I will, um, add a little bit more scrutiny to what I'm about to say. This is wholly my opinion, but part of me does wonder if maybe on the other side, that door is a little bit more open. I I like I like that Taylor. Um, I like everything you just said. It, to me, it's it's just kind of helpful to think about the other side in the context of that for this side and how we should love and approach people. Um, just a couple comments, and I'll turn it back to you. I wrote down the scripture: "Perfect love casteth out fear." I do agree that. Fear-based messages are not helpful in the long run for members of the church, that we have this gospel that you've described and sort of give context to Joseph Smith and what he was trying to do. And and if we really own our doctrine and own the life of Christ and own how we believe about the next life and the door-opening experiences for people that aren't of our faith or even left our faith, we should lead with love if we really understand our doctrine and really live it. And I don't think we need to have fear-based messages. There's enough of that going on in enough um, circles in the world without bringing that into our congregations. I've thought a little bit about the covenant path, that language that's come into the vernacular of the church at some point in my lifetime in the last. I like the covenant path, but I don't like it if it feels like it's me alone. And back to I'll work out my salvation. I'm on my covenant path and no one else is on there with me to me. So much of the covenant path, quote unquote, is what you've described. It's the interactions I have with humanity, and it's my covenants to bear, mourn, and comfort. And so much of I look at the covenant path is my relationship with other people. I look at Alma at the waters of Mormon when he extended that baptism invitation. The first part of that baptism invitation was mourn, bear, and comfort. He didn't get to any rules until after he talked about that. And so that's been reflective for me and consistent with what you're sharing. So listeners, I'll turn it over to Taylor, but I'm just so glad that Taylor's been on the podcast. Please connect with Taylor. We'll, in the show notes, we'll link his Twitter so you can connect with his Twitter. Um, we'll link to his book. And it's a pretty young guy. You may not feel like a young guy at 30, but you have a a, vo- a needed voice in um, our faith, Taylor, with your um, work and um, writing a book and just um, I just have a feeling that your voice will continue to be helpful for our faith community as more people connect with you and are drawn 
you're not making stuff up. Um, I really believe you're teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, particularly the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, and the uniqueness of those things that came through the prophet Joseph Smith that are so needed um, in our community and beyond. So I'll turn it back for you, Taylor. Any final comments? Thank you. Um, I was I was very very kind, and I that's um, you know, ultimately what I am hoping the book can do is first build community with people who are suffering from scrupulosity. As I sat writing the book, my number one hope was that someone with scrupulosity would read this book and go, oh my gosh, I do that too. Um, There are parts of this book that are painfully, painfully honest. Respect. Um, And I have included... when I first started writing it, I tried to edit it a little bit um, to, to, frankly, safeguard some of those things that were so honest. And I realized that the only way to do this book well was to be as honest as I possibly could um, so we can build those connections. The second thing that I hope this book does is it leaves every member of the church who reads it those who suffer with scrupulosity and those that don't with a little bit better theology. Um, it's, it's, I, I appreciated you saying that I'm not making stuff up. <laughs> this is, I, I really truly feel that what I share in the book um, is the integrity of the restored gospel. Um, as you shared, the covenant path is not meant to be walked alone. And I think that's one thing Joseph Smith teaches us in his conviction of gathering, that exaltation needs to be, and I'm plagiarizing Terrell Gibbons here, needs to be a collective enterprise. In other words, it's something we do together. And that if we're not doing it together, if we're not building community, if that is not our priority, and I stress again that that is our market advantage, that is the one thing we can really offer that cannot be either replaced or counterfeited on the outside. If we are not doing that, we are living below our commission. Um, The last thing I would share is... um, Um, A verse from Matthew chapter 22, and I I pulled it up while you were talking. Um, In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God, and that we shall love our neighbor as ourselves." And this is the part of the New Testament where he says, On this hangs the law and the prophets. In other words, all the other rules, all the other things that make a Mormon a Mormon, hang on these two commandments, to love God and love our neighbor. And I would interject that Jesus also told us that when we serve, the least of our brethren, we are serving him. In other words, as I read Jesus's 
words, it does not seem to me that there is a clear distinction between serving God and serving neighbor. At least that's what King Benjamin taught. My hope is that anyone listening to this podcast and anyone who reads my book will walk away with the conviction that we need to discard our idol God of personal purity and begin worshiping God by churning outward towards his children, whom Jesus Christ and King Benjamin and others have taught us when we serve, we are ultimately serving God. And in my experience as a person suffering from scrupulosity, when I make that the focal point of my worship, I am able to disregard the obsessions that tell me I am not good enough or I am not working hard enough. Because I can know with a higher degree of certainty that I have done good um, as I listen to someone or as I serve someone. That is my hope with the book. And that is my, I suppose, also my testimony of the restored gospel that um, we are called to look outward, to love, and to serve. We are not called to obsess over how good we are. In fact, Jesus had very stern words for people in his day that obsessed with how good they were. To that end, it's important that in our teaching, um, we ensure that we are not encouraging the God of personal purity to supplant the God of the restoration. Um, my book, published through by Common Consent Press, is called Scrupulous, My Obsessive Compulsion for God, and can be found in a Kindle version um, or in paperback uh, from Amazon or through the By Common Consent website, which will redirect you to Amazon. Um, the last thing I would say, and I, I ne neglected to say this anywhere else, um, in the back of my book, are suggestions for leadership. Uh, I, me, my editor and I tried very hard to get um, one or two pages in the back of the book that um, if you didn't read anything else, <laughs> you could read and they would help you know how to minister to someone who has scrupulosity. Um, also in the back of the book are some helpful talks and some helpful scriptures and some other helpful books written by um, professionals in, in, in the um, field of OCD research um, that can be helpful for someone who is suffering. So I, I want to say one more time, I am not a therapist. Um, I'm someone who has um, obsessively <laughs> studied the history of our church and our theology. I'm a professional educator. I'm, I'm not a replacement for going to therapy. My book is not a replacement for going to therapy. You need to do that too. Um, what I hope my book does is provide community, provide some help, provide a rethinking of theology. And at the end of the day, I hope that it is the start, not the end, of a conversation that we can have in this church and in our community about scrupulosity um, and how we can build a better 
more Zion-like community for all members of the church. That's great. Um, Taylor Kirby, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks to our friends at Buy Common Consent for publishing your book. And everybody check this book out. This is Richard Osler and Taylor Kirby signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.